You are listening to a Pleasure Podcast. For more from our Sex Podcast Collective, visit PleasurePodcasts.com. Hello, friends. Welcome to American Sex, a podcast dedicated to normalizing conversations about pleasure and alternative sexual expression by challenging those puritanical, backward-ass ideals we have here in the United States. This is episode 93 of American Sex Podcast, and I'm Sunny Megatron. My co-host is Ken Melvoinberg. We're sexuality educators, pleasure advocates, and of course, we're kinky, non-monogamous perverts too. Yeah, that's some foreshadowing to what we're talking about today. You're going to be hearing from Ken in our guest conversation. But right now I want to introduce you to our guest, Dr. Liz Powell. Dr. Liz believes that great sex can change the world. She's on a mission to help you have more meaningful, pleasurable relationships in life and work as well as the bedroom. She's a coach and licensed psychologist helping couples and singles develop self-confidence and authenticity in their relationships, whether those relationships are conventional or non-traditional. Dr. Liz has made multiple media appearances, including Cosmo, Health.com, and the CBC radio show Ideas. As a sex educator, Dr. Liz has spoken on many stages internationally, including the American Association of Sexuality Educators, Counselors, and Therapists Annual Conference, the Guelph Sexuality Conference, and the Woodhull Sexual Freedom Summit. And by the way, if you've never heard of Woodhull, hang tight. I'm going to be telling you more about that later. Dr. Liz's new book, Building Open Relationships, is the newest way she's spreading the great sex word. Dr. Liz believes that being confident in who you are is the gateway to great relationships and great sex. And by the way, great sex, according to Dr. Liz, can change the world. I got to tell you, Dr. Liz is such a wealth of information, and she is so skilled at cutting through all of the emotional confusion and relationship roadblocks that all of us have and just getting right down to the heart of the matter. She'll like call you out on your shit and not make you feel like you've been called out on your shit, but you've totally been called out on your shit. And it's a good thing. So this conversation starts out how you'd never expect. We're chatting about Harry Potter houses, but that quickly morphs into open relationship styles and situations. We talk about when you should and when you shouldn't open your relationship, how relationships change when they become non-monogamous, how to emotionally prepare for opening up your relationship, unicorn hunting, the trap of the relationship escalator, the different types of non-monogamous relationship styles and how to figure out which one is best for you. And of course, the big one when it comes to open relationships, managing jealousy. We also talk about quite a bit that applies to any type of relationship, whether that's a monogamous romantic one or relationships with friends, family, or coworkers. Things like how avoidance reinforces negative emotions, techniques for establishing healthy boundaries, the challenges of wanting to change someone's negative behavior, and a lot more. I don't care what kind of relationship you're in or what kind of relationship you desire. This episode has some great resources for happiness for absolutely everything everyone. And over on Patreon, Dr. Liz tells us a crappy story from her days as an army captain. So make sure you check out that too at patreon.com slash American sex. And if you're wondering what the heck Patreon is, what's our membership service? American sex podcast Patreon members get special perks like bonus stories from our guests, extra full length episodes, American sex podcast stickers sent to them in the mail, uh, personal video greetings, and even random other surprises in the mail. Man, my surprises are good, let me tell you. As a member, you also help support this show, and that's really important and something we're especially appreciative of. We'd love for you to join us over at patreon.com slash American sex. Okay, One other thing about this episode I wanted to mention that I think is important. As I was editing, I realized that we used the word compersion a few times, but we never explained what it means. Now, I'm going to read you the definition of compersion from the glossary of Dr. Liz's book on open relationships. Compersion is joy for another person's joy, sometimes called the opposite of jealousy, 
but it can coexist with jealousy. When you feel happy because a friend gets promoted, that's compersion. All right, and one last thing. You only have about a week left to enter my giveaway. I've teamed up with Karma Tantric to give away a tantric massage set valued at $200. This giveaway is open to people worldwide. Usually it's just North America. So, you you know, if you're listening from Poland or I don't know where, get on this. I'll have a link to the entry page in the show notes for episode 93 at americansexpodcast.com. So go ahead and enter it and good luck. All right, American fuckers, get ready for our conversation with Dr. Liz Powell. So I tend to think of Slytherins just as like Scorpios. Well, I am also a Scorpio, so that's okay. appropriate. <laughs> See? So I feel like Scorpio Slytherins, it's like perfection. Um, but yeah, Slytherins, like, for me, Slytherin is much more about that I am not going to do what you tell me to do just because you said it. Like, I am going to look at the situation, <laughs> make my own independent analysis and decision, and then move from there. Like, that's what Slytherin is. You know, Gryffindor is like, I want to be the best. I want to be the, the cool kid. I want to be Captain America. And like, with all the fame and glory, where Slytherins are like, look, I'm going to take care of myself. I'm going to take care of the people I care about. And like, who gives a fuck about the other shit? I like that. Kind of like anarchist, nonconformist, like, but not bad. Not, no, not bad. And, not and, bad at all. No, there's nothing inherently bad about any of the houses. I have a predisposition against Gryffindors, but like, that's because I'm a Slytherin, right? And we're opposite sides. Um, if you think of it as like a circle with the houses on like four points, each 90 degrees from each other, Slytherin and Gryffindor would be across from each other. And so there's a natural sort of uh, inability to understand each other and like a sort of conflict that comes from that. But it doesn't mean that Gryffindors are bad. I just don't like how they do things because it's kind of the opposite of how I would do things. Now, the flip side of that is that I think the best friendships ever are Slytherin and Hufflepuff. Like, why? Heck yeah. Why? Okay. Because uh, Hufflepuffs need Slytherins to give them boundaries and to help them like say no to things and stand up for themselves. And Slytherins need Hufflepuffs because they'll love us no matter what. They'll be able to see like our hard exterior and our rough edges and like love us without any issues with those things. Oh, she said that so much more eloquently I than I did. I would be like, I'm a Slytherin, so I need a bottom and that'll be a Hufflepuff. <laughs> I mean, that is also true. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. Um, so but I, it means the same thing that you just said. Right. You just, you're just you just way better with words than I am. I'm just a little bit meaner. I mean, words are, t- are my profession, right? When you're a psychologist, so much of what we do is about the ways that we understand ourselves, the stories that we make, the words we use to describe who we are and how we do things. So like words is my jam. Well, it's interesting as I'm listening to this conversation and I'm like totally 100% in it for like the Harry Potter, you know, ness of it. But I'm also like, there's a huge parallel here because we're about to talk about your book, Building yeah. Open Relationships. And uh, this is kind of what you do when you're talking about open relationships. There's different types of relationships and different types of people. And instead of us all going, well, you're, you know, like, I'm going to give an example, which we all see around the non-monogamous lunch table, like, yeah. <laughs> I'm polyamorous, and you're a swinger. Ew. And, you know, like you, what you, how you practice your non monogamy is just like weird and no good. And I'm so much better than you. And if we all just realize we all have our place, we're all valid. None of us is mm-hmm. better or worse, or even, you know, uh, non monogamous versus monogamous people. You oh, know, yeah. none is more evolved, none is better. Yeah. We just all have different preferences. And we need to figure out not only how you know which one we are and what you know what house what non-monogamous house this might be a second book like archetypes according oh to God. harry potter oh th- no i really write this write down write this shit down uh. yeah um you know but not only w- what house you belong to but how to get along with people in all the other houses and how to fuck them too because we're bringing this the relationship sorting hat would be a great name for that well so oh. you know i told y'all before we started recording that i'm at the Perlene right now, which is a social club and workspace for ambitious women. Uh And uh, they have a sorting ceremony, actually. You're sorted into one of four houses, each of which embody two of the core values of the Perlene. And each house has a a stone, like a gemstone that it's associated with, and also an animal totem. (gasps) 
That's so cool. It's amazing. It's so That's cool. That's so cool. Um, we should yeah, probably no. do an introduction. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Hi, Dr. Liz. Hi, Dr. Hi. Liz. Welcome to American Sex Podcast. <laughs> I love this. This is how we did Swing Set, too. We all just started chatting and recorded yeah. it and whatever. It works. It works. So, um, okay. Uh, open relationships are the thing that everybody's talking about. Whether, yeah. you know, A, it's kind of trendy right now. But whether... You are talking about people who are experienced in non-monogamy that want to just like get a little better or, you know, figure out where their flaws are, where their issues are and, and, and work on them. Or on the flip side, there are a lot of people and I know they, they must come to you like they come to us like, Hey, me and my husband or my partner, whoever, you know, we're thinking of spicing things up and opening up for the relationship or things are getting a little weird. So we thought that's always like red flag. Yes, always. Um, (laughs) So when we're talking about people who are entering open relationships that are currently in a relationship with Mm -hmm. someone. What are the like, okay, this, this, you should, you know, open the door and, and the light is green versus these are red flags. These are not reasons to open your relationship. What are yeah. those? So, I mean, top reasons to not open your relationship is like your relationship is shitty right now. If you're expecting that non-monogamy is going to fix your relationship, it's going to fix your relationship the way a baby would fix your relationship, which is to say not at all and make it worse. Okay. Because a lot of these people think babies will fix their relationships. No. Hey, heads up. I'm a mom of two. It won't. Yeah. Uh, So, yeah. (laughs) And and I think it comes from an interesting place, right? Of we're in this problem. We don't know how to solve it ourselves. Maybe we can create like a pressure release valve by fucking other people. And that'll make it easier for us to be in relationship with each other. When realistically, what open relationships do is offer you more opportunities for conflict with more people. Uh, Uh If you are already in a space where you have trouble communicating or dealing with conflict, open relationships are just going to make that exponentially worse. Uh, Because with each partner that you add in, it's not just like a a sum process. It's, It's a logarithmic function where you have so much more degrees of complexity each time you add in someone new. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the other big thing that I see a lot is folks have this assumption that they're going to be able to like keep their relationship the, sh- the same and just add in other people. And that doesn't work. Um, from my perspective, monogamy of any sort is a thing that you do as an individual, not a thing you do as a couple. Mm. Because... When we think of it as a thing that couples do, we re-enshrine couple privilege, uh, which is a really problematic structure. Couple privilege is the way in which our society gives benefits to folks who are viewed in socially acceptable couples. So people who are married are treated better than people who aren't. People who are in what is perceived to be a socially monogamous couple are given a lot more benefits and treated better than folks who are perceived to be in non-monogamous relationships. Uh, There are ways that we assume that you will give your romantic or sexual partner, particularly in monogamy, but like your most uh, significant partner, even in non-monogamy, sorts of benefits and um, rights that you don't give to any of your other partners. And when you try to keep your relationship the same as you start exploring non-monogamy, what you're going to end up doing is hurting the other people you explore with and hurting yourselves. You can't do non-monogamy like monogamy plus people. It just doesn't function that way because it's not you aren't adding in extra toys. You're bringing in people with their own wants and needs and hopes and dreams. And it's so unpredictable how each of us are going to interact with the people we bring into our lives. To assume that you're going to be able to keep one relationship constant while changing everything else about how you interact with romance and sex and relationship, there's just no way that's going to work. What about the couple that's opening up their relationship and they're like, hey, we just want to bring in a third. And you know, this is almost <laughs> always a hetero couple who wants yes. to bring in another woman, uh-huh. aka Hi, the unicorn hunters. Yeah. So what about that situation? Uh, one of my big quests in life is to be less judgmental about people who do things differently than I do. So I'm going to try to answer this in as non-judgmental a way as possible. Uh, even though I have a very strong like urge to judgment about it, um, I get where this comes from. There's this idea that If you can just bring in this extra woman, everything will be hot and sexy and you won't have to deal with any of the complications. The problem is a lot of the time 
folks have created for this other person an entire structure of what their relationship is going to be without that person's knowledge or consent or involvement. And that feels really objectifying to the people who are being interviewed for this position. When you're being told exactly how you're going to interact and how things are going to look, and that, of course, their couplehood is going to always take precedence, but you must also sacrifice your wants and needs to their couplehood, it can feel as though they're looking for a sex toy rather than a person. And I don't think they do this intentionally. I think that it's a reflection of the ways that we teach people to have relationships in a culture that is mononormative and heteronormative. The messages that folks get about what relationship is, is there's a certain degree of control that you get over your partner. You get to tell them who they can hang out with. You get to tell them what they can do with their body uh, because that's how you handle relationships. And so when people expand that out, looking for a unicorn, they're just following those same principles of, well, here's what you can do with your body. Here's how you're going to interact with us. Here's how this relationship is going to be. But what they'll likely run into is that folks who are hot by babes or the unicorns that they're looking for don't want to step into a relationship that's been decided without them. They want to have a say in the relationship. They want to be able to have things evolve in a way that is as beneficial for them and that takes into account their wants and needs every bit as much as the folks that they're in relationship with. There's also a really kind of can border on coercion dynamic there where you have to be equally in love with both members of the couple and have equal sex with both members of the couple. And the likelihood of that happening is so close to zero that it might as well be zero. Um, Attraction is really complicated. Who we're attracted to changes over time. How much attraction we feel for folks changes over time. Who we fall in love with is hard to predict. Like it's really hard to know who you're going to feel that for. And when you're putting all of these constraints onto who can come into your relationship, you're basically just guaranteeing that you're never going to find this person. Uh, I see in poly groups a ton of posts from folks who are like, we're looking for our hot by babe who's going to join our relationship and like help take care of our kids. And she's not going to have any other partners and she has to be attractive and like want to work to make, bring in money, but like not work too much. She's going to love us both equally. She's going to have sex with both of us. And we've been looking for six months and we can't find her at that rate. Get a couple of good sex toys and a puppy. You get all the sex you need and then you get the love and the cuddles you need. (laughs) And it's again, we would never say that we make fun of people who have this like huge list of what their partner needs to be. If you were to go into dating as a single person looking for a person of a very specific height, very specific looks, very specific profession, uh, very specific ideas about what relationship is, who's willing to commit immediately, wants exactly the same number of children as you do, wants to live in the same place that you do. Everyone would tell you you're just not going to find that. But for some reason, when it comes to non-monogamy, there's this assumption that you should be able to just stumble into a non-monogamous community and have a bevy of unicorns throwing themselves at you. And that's just not reality. For the audience, can you explain what mononormative means? Mononormativity is the way that our culture assumes monogamy and privileges monogamy over other kinds of relationships. So uh, we see this in the way that if you start dating someone, it's assumed you're going to stop having sex with other people and also start uh, prioritizing the way that you spend time with your partner over friends. Even if you've had those friends for decades, you should be spending more time with your partner. Um It's also an assumption that you'll follow what's called the relationship escalator, which is you'll like date casually, then you'll date seriously, then you'll move in together, then you'll get engaged, then you'll get married, then you'll have kids. And when we look at that mononormative structure, it's highly constraining because it assumes that there is only one way for relationships to go and that that is the right way for every relationship to go. I'm thinking for people listening along who are at the stage of, okay, so we want to open our relationship. So we've established that you need to have a for a good foundation, a solid foundation. You need ha- to know how to do relationships. So you need to be a good communicator. You need to be a good listener. You need to be a good problem solver and all that stuff. A lot of us aren't good at doing that. You know, whether we're mm-hmm. monogamous, whether we're nominated, there's a lot of non-monogamous people who think they're great at it and they're not. Oh boy, yes. Yeah. So that's a whole nother episode. <laughs> but um, 
So if we're like, all right, we want to do this right, we're opening our relationship and we know like maybe we don't have the most solid foundation or we don't have the best communication skills. Where the fuck do we learn that? Because obviously that's not a thing our society just like, you know, has and and teaches its members. So what do you do? Well, you know, the the one recommendation that's the same for all of these situations is like therapy or coaching is great if you can afford it or find someone who has financial accessibility policies that allow you to afford it. Um, Because a lot of times as important as self growth is, we need someone from the outside to help us see what we're not seeing ourselves. Uh, The metaphor I give folks is like, those of you listening at home, take a hand and put the palm of your hand on your nose. And then tell me where the palm ends and the fingers start. You can't. It's too close. It gets blurry. You can't see where things start and end. That's the reality of how most of us move through our own lives. There's some stuff we get perspective on, but a lot of our stuff is just way too close. And it's hard for us to see what it is that we're doing or how it's impacting others. If you can't afford those resources, there's a ton of great books out there um, about non-monogamy specifically. But even outside of that realm, looking for books on emotional intelligence can be really, really helpful. Emotional intelligence is basically the set of skills that allows us to identify and speak about our own emotions and to be attuned to and speak with others about their emotions. Um, And I think a lot of us don't learn these skills because our society here in the States and in most Western or, you know, England colonized societies focuses on intellectual intelligence uh, with a kind of disregard of the emotional self and the emotional intelligence. But when you develop emotional intelligence skills, it really helps you in all kinds of ways with your relationships because you're going to notice sooner when something is not working for you and you're going to notice sooner when something you're doing is not working for someone else. And it'll also give you the tools to be able to talk about it in a way that is likely to be more productive rather than highly conflictual. And, and by the way, I wish you could have seen us about two minutes ago where we were both putting our palms on our nose and looking at each other with very <laughs> yeah. silly faces, not understanding exactly what was going on. Yeah. That no, it's, funny. It's, it's a fun exercise, right? Because I think a lot of us assume that we know a lot more about ourselves than we might. Uh, humans as meaning making creatures, we're really great at coming up with stories about who we are and what we're doing and how we do things. And sometimes those stories are true and sometimes they're not. And it can be hard from the inside to know which stories are actually working for you and which stories aren't. Definitely. Definitely. Okay. So I'm, I, I guess I'm a theoretical couple that's a listener right now. Yeah, so do it. As my theoretical couple, it's like, all right. So we, we talked about open our relationship. We got some emotional intelligence. We got a coach. We read some books. We're ready to do it. However... Uh, my mind's exploding now because there are so many different types of relationships. There's yes. you know, polyamory, there's hierarchical, there's relationship anarchy, there's swinging, there's, there's all sorts of different stuff. So, and all of these things have, you know, a certain set of rules or a structure, you know, this mm-hmm. type of relationship ha- generally has this type of structure. So how do one you know where the fuck you fall because it's confusing and there are so many different categories. And two, how do you know what parts of that structure maybe you want to change and mesh to fit your own situation and your own needs and desires? That's such a good question. I think that a lot of people, when they start moving into non-monogamous communities, want to like pick an identity really quickly. And I don't think that that serves folks. Um, If you pick an identity right at the start, most likely where you're going to pick that from is fear, uh, from a space of like fear of losing your relationship or fear of your relationship changing too much or fear of not finding enough dates or fear of feeling left out or getting too jealous. And when those fears drive you, you're likely to pick a relationship that is more restrictive or more strictly structured than one that might be a good fit for you down the road. So I would encourage folks to like try out a bunch of different communities and talk to folks from a bunch of different communities and not feel a need to like pigeonhole yourself right away immediately. Um, If you were to start doing uh, horseback riding, it wouldn't be expected that you would immediately on your first horseback riding session pick exactly what kind of horse you want to ride and how you want to ride it and what gear you're going to wear and how often you're going to ride it. 
they'd want you to take some time and explore it first to see, first of all, is this for you? Second of all, are you more a Western or an English person? Are you someone who wants to do longer rides or shorter rides? Do you even like jumping or doing those kinds of tricks? When we take time to explore, we're much more likely to find something that aligns for us. Mm. And I think the labels are really helpful for finding affinity groups, people who feel a lot of the same things you do. I also think that almost none of us are going to practice non-monogamy the same way as almost anybody else. Uh, when I do non-monogamy, there are a lot of folks I know who do it very similarly to me, and we may share some of the same descriptors in terms of how we identify. So like I identify as solo poly, uh, which means that I practice my relationships as an individual, and I want deeply connected, long-lasting romantic and sexual relationships that are two individuals coming together rather than someone subsuming themselves into couplehood. Um, and so like having that language is helpful. But the way that I do solo poly is not necessarily the same way that anyone else does solo poly. Some people who are solo poly don't intend to ever share housing or share finances. I might share housing someday. I might be open to sharing finances someday. Right. So those, those labels aren't, they're a place to start, not a place to end. Just like with any label when it comes to sex or relationships, I identify as bisexual. Bisexuality tells you a lot about me, but it doesn't tell you everything about me. And the way that I do bisexuality might be really different than how a dozen other people do bisexuality. So like, give yourself space and time, you know, explore a lot of different groups. There are swinger clubs everywhere. You can always go and check out a swinger club and see how it feels for you. See if it feels like the right environment for you. You're never obligated to play when you go to a swinger club. You can just go and watch, just see what it's like. Um, most major cities will have meetup groups for polyamory. So you can go and just see how people talk about things and listen to what they're doing. You can listen to podcasts like this one or like Life on the Swing Set or Multiamory and hear people talking about different ways that they do non-monogamy and hear you know, what aligns more with you, what doesn't. But just take time and explore and expand your horizons and don't feel like you have to choose right away. It mm -hmm. isn't... We aren't in factions. We aren't getting sorted into houses. Like most folks I know are much more fluid across boundaries than they are rigid within them. Right, right. Now you said something interesting that I know, you know, for me is, is a huge one is you said that people are motivated or set their constraints by fear. Yeah. And fear and jealousy are huge, 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 huge. And I see a lot of people, especially in the, the beginning of their non-monogamous journey, you know, whether like, let's, let's just give like the swinger example, like, you know, okay, you can fuck someone like this, but you can't kiss them on the mouth. And then you can't yeah. do, and there's all We're only soft rules. swap. We're not going to do full swap, only soft exactly. swap. And we must both be there. We can never do it separately. And we can only do it if we both like both members of the other couple. And yeah. So, or, or you see like the, the, you know, the one dick policy, if it's, oh, if it's God. a hetero couple and it's like, you, okay, wife, you can sleep with women, but you can't sleep with other men, but I can sleep with, you know, whatever. Right. I can sleep with um, whoever I want. Yeah. So are there any situations where these very rigid rules serve a positive purpose and, uh, what sorts of negative purposes are they serving? In terms of the positive purposes, I think that if it is a well-defined short-term agreement, any of these things could be positive. So for instance, if someone had just gotten pregnant and they want to be sure that they are very, very on top of STI prevention, it might make sense for a while that they don't have sex with other people with penises because STI transmission is more likely in that kind of engagement. Mm -hmm. um, I think that... Again, if there's a specific reason and a specific term set. So like for three months, we are going to do that. After that period of time, the assumption is that we will have worked through whatever thing is keeping us in this more restrictive space and do something differently, that it can be okay. Mm -hmm. I think the problem I see is a lot of folks are like, well, let's just not do this now. And then when I've worked through my jealousy issues, then you can do this thing. And then the person doesn't actually do work on their jealousy issues. Right. Jealousy is a fascinating feeling because I don't think that there's any other feeling that we talk about in our lives that we allow to have so much control over what we do. You know, when folks say to me, oh, I could never do non-monogamy, I'd be too jealous. My question is, well, why do you date at all? Because your partner could die. Like, do you want to avoid grief? 
Why, why mm-hmm. do you bother dating at all? Because someone might turn you down. And wouldn't that be really sad? There's no other emotion that we say, I'm not going to ever do this thing because I might feel this emotion. Emotions by definition are not long lasting. Most emotions have their own cycle. They come and they go. Jealousy, like any other emotion, has its own natural cycle. When we decide to, for whatever reason, limit our relationships or try to create structural solutions to emotional problems, what we Uh end up doing is reinforcing that those emotions were real. Um, I do a lot of work with trauma. I, you know, I was in the army for five years. I'm trained in a lot of trauma therapies. And the biggest thing we teach folks is that avoidance creates worse symptoms. If I'm really nervous about driving, so I decide not to ever drive, every time I decide not to drive because it makes me feel nervous or anxious, I'm reinforcing that that anxiety was for a good reason. And my brain learns to keep feeling anxious in those situations because it's actual real danger. Mm. A lot of times our brain perceives something as dangerous that is not actually dangerous. And when we give into those misperceptions, we reinforce that they were true. The more that you try to limit someone else because of your feelings, the more that you reinforce those feelings and guarantee that they're going to happen again in the future. And this isn't to say like, never regard your feelings or your feelings are 100% only your responsibility. You know, part of being in a relationship is coming at others with kindness and caring about how what you do makes them feel. But structural problems are never going to solve feelings. We are never going to learn that something is not a threat until we face it and find ourselves overcoming it. Right. So I hear a lot of people, you know, like you were saying, they're, they're like, I can't, uh, you know, I I can't be in a place where I feel jealousy, so I'm never going to do it. But then I hear a lot of people say like, okay, so when do I get to the point where I'm not jealous? <laughs> like that's the goal. If you find it, let me know. Like I've been doing non-monogamy on and off for 19 years. Uh, I had my first non-monogamous relationship in high school. I was in a dating quad uh, and I still feel jealousy sometimes. Um, I don't think that the goal is to never feel jealousy. I think the goal is to understand your jealousy and learn how to lean into compersion when you want to. There's nothing inherently wrong about feeling jealousy. There's nothing inherently wrong about any feeling. Our feelings give us information. For me, I know that when I'm feeling jealous, it's usually an indication that I'm feeling really insecure within my relationship, that there is something that's making me feel like I can't settle into this relationship. Because when I feel settled, when I feel secure, when I know my partner is is in love with me and is still coming back to me, I'm like the absolute monarch of compersion. I'm so happy to hear all of the filthy, dirty stories that they want to tell me about the other people that they fuck. So if I'm not having that reaction, to me, that's an indication that there's something that I need to examine. Do I need to ask for something from this person that I'm not getting? Do I need to do some personal work of my own insecurities? Do we need to have a chat and see if this relationship is actually working for us? Every emotion that we have is giving us information. And when we decide not to do a thing because we don't want to have that information, we're harming ourselves. We're creating more problems. I had a question. Is there a word that you like for additional partners? I've been coming to terms that I think that the word metamor is kind of bougie. And I kind of like brother in or I'm sorry, uh, boyfriend-in-law, they friend-in-law, or girlfriend-in-law. I like that. That's a cool one. I usually use metamor just because it's like the term that I learned when I was coming on this journey. Um, I do think it is sort of bougie and like it doesn't... A lot of folks can't look at it and understand exactly what it means. Um, and I also like the complexity that I've run into is like, what do you call someone who was your metamor, but then you broke up with your shared partner, but you're still in a relationship of some sort. So like I've <laughs> yeah. heard like metaphor as in like your before <laughs> metaphor, metamor. I don't know. The, this is a common problem in non-monogamy is that you start having all of these sorts of relationships that there are no words for. Like I have a person that I see here in Portland and our relationship is largely about culinary hedonism. So we have amazing That's food awesome. together. We drink amazing wine together. We feel deeply for each other, right? We have a connection that we've agreed is more than platonic, but we don't really have sex. So like, what do you call that? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I, yeah. Because of heteronormativity. Yeah, I, I, maybe. Um, Foodamore? We've kind of settled on sweetie. Like, sweetie is fine, I oh, guess. Oh, that's awesome. Sweetie is the term that I use for relationships that are more than friendships, but like not quite partnerships. 
That's the term that I've settled on. But right. we have a paucity of language. The I think largely as a result of white supremacy and heteronormativity and mononormativity, we just don't have a lot of words for the kinds of relationships that happen. Right. Um, you know, a lot of these sorts of relationships were not unusual before England colonized the whole goddamn world uh, and told them all that they were terrible heathens who needed to stop doing their filthy, filthy things. And this paucity of terminology, I think, affects the ways that we're able to think about and understand what we're doing in relationship. Mm. Yeah. So is it expected or the norm for um, somebody to make friends with or reach out to or communicate with the spouse or partner of somebody that they're dating? I mean, I think it's helpful. Um, I don't want to say that anything is ever required. Um, For me in my personal life, if I'm dating someone and their partner is unwilling to talk to me or meet me, for me, that's a red flag. Uh, because I'm feeling this so hard right now because I just got my first one of those motherfuckers. Yeah. My history of that has been that in, in my personal experience, all of those situations have been a partner who was uncomfortable with their partner dating me. And so Mm -hmm. that discomfort came through their unwillingness to engage with me. And, and so for me, that's a red flag, uh, based on my own experience. It should never be required that you have any specific kind of relationship with your metamors or your partner's partners. I think that it's best if you can all at least be at their birthday party together, right? If you can't be casually cordial with this person, there is something going on there that probably should be looked at. Um, Mm. I I prefer to be friendly with my metamors, largely because I like group sex. And if we can all bang together, that's all the better. (laughs) Um, But, you know, not everybody is that way. Not all people have like space and time in their lives to develop a lot of new friendships or connections with folks who there are their partners, partners, but I think that it's helpful. I mean, the way that I think about it is if we're all dating the same person, we're all on the same team, right? We're all on the team for that partner and being able to support each other about that and being able to um, find ways to help support that person that are more effective for all of us together is really helpful. At the beginning of this episode, I promised I'd tell you more about the Woodhull Freedom Foundation. And if you don't know about it, you should. The Woodhull Freedom Foundation is the only human rights organization working full-time on gender and sexual rights. Founded in 2003, they have worked on issues as wide-ranging as ending the shackling of prisoners during childbirth, protecting domestic partnership registries, and fighting FOSTA and its censoring of sexual speech online. They have an incredible annual event called the Sexual Freedom Summit. The Sexual Freedom Summit is a four-day event where educators, researchers, content creators, and activists come together to share information and advocacy tools that protect our fundamental human right to express our unique sexual and gender identities. They host all-day institutes, workshops, sexy evening events, and have a large vendor exhibitor area, all in the name of sexual freedom. Some of the things they've done this year is they've partnered with the Sex Workers Outreach Project, a.k.a. Swap USA, who will have several workshops throughout the summit, as well as a sex worker-only institute. Also, Joan Price and Jessica Drake will be doing a screening of their film, Jessica Drake's Guide to Wicked Sex, Senior Sex Edition. And they'll also have a Q&A session after the film. And there's so much more in these jam-packed four days of the summit. The 2019 Woodhull Sexual Freedom Summit will take place on August 15th through 18th in Alexandria, Virginia. Get your tickets now at woodhullfoundation.org. That's W-O-O-D-H-U-L-L foundation.org. Sexual rights are human rights. To keep up with the Sexual Freedom Summit, follow the hashtag SFS19. According to the National Alliance on Mental Illness, LGBTQ plus folks are three times more likely to experience mental health challenges due to discrimination and social rejection. Thankfully, Talkspace provides a support system trained to help members of the LGBTQ plus community handle their most challenging emotions and issues of gender, sexual identity, and orientation. 
Talkspace is committed to helping LGBTQ plus folks experience acceptance and support. That's why they provide a safe space for you to be open and honest about what you're going through. Their therapists help you work through challenges related to gender, sexuality, or any other parts of life. More importantly, they're specifically trained in handling life issues LGBTQ plus folks face, from healthcare access to marriage equality, workplace discrimination, and more. Talkspace couldn't be simpler. Send unlimited messages and hear back from your therapist daily, five days a week. All you need is a computer with an internet connection or the Talkspace mobile app. Your conversation is completely confidential and can be done from the privacy of your device. And if you want to switch therapists, no problem. You can do so at any time at no extra cost. Talkspace has more than 4,000 licensed therapists who are experienced in working with LGBTQ plus clients. To match with a therapist for a fraction of the price of traditional therapy, go to Talkspace.com slash Sunny. Make sure you use the code SUNNY, S-U-N-N-Y, to get your first week free and to show your support for American Sex Podcast. That's your first week of therapy absolutely free when you sign up today at Talkspace.com slash SUNNY. So what about the uh, relationship category or term relationship anarchy because this has become kind of a hot new like buzzword or relationship yeah. style and a lot of people don't really understand it's real murky like what the fuck does it mean yeah so uh, <laughs> i'll give this caveat the one reason i don't personally identify as a relationship anarchist is because when i was first coming back into the polyamorous community the relationship anarchists i met were relationship libertarians their approach was, your feelings are your feelings. I don't have to deal with them at all. If you're upset about something that I did, that's yours to deal with, which is not what relationship anarchy should be. <laughs> um, yeah. No, that's just like consensual or not, not even consensual non-consent. That's just non-consent. Yeah. It's, it, there's a lot of relationship libertarians out there, particularly cisgender men, particularly white cisgender men. Uh, Relationship anarchy basically looks at the ways that we think about relationships and breaking down the categories that we have that divide people into different boxes. So uh, as I mentioned before, in this culture, we tend to value romantic partnerships over friendships, that if there is not a sexual or romantic component, we view that relationship as less important or less of value or a lower priority than one that does have those components. In relationship anarchy, the idea instead is that you approach each relationship as its own individual entity and let it grow and move to whatever space it grows and moves to. So you don't go into like, I want to date this person. This is a person I'm going to have a sexual and romantic relationship with. You go into it as, okay, I'm going to interact with this person and we'll see what we're both down for and see what evolves from that. Mm. In addition, relationship anarchists tend to have no rules in their relationships and to avoid agreements in their relationships as much as possible. So it's a relationship style that is practiced primarily from a space of boundaries. So giving quick definitions on these three things, rules, agreements, and boundaries, uh, boundaries have to do with yourself, your own body, your own mind, your own time, your own heart. They are the things that you fully control. Uh, rules, or we'll go to agreements. Uh, so agreements are things that are decided upon by two or more people. And everyone who is affected by that agreement gets to have a say in it. So if someone was not initially involved in that agreement, and then the relationship goes to a place where they would be affected by that agreement, they get to have a say in making sure that that agreement still fits for their relationships. So agreements presuppose a certain degree of flexibility, and that they are not fixed over time, that there is an understanding it will continue to be renegotiated as new factors come in. Mm -hmm. Rules are decided by two or more people and affect people who do not get a say in them. So there's a certain rigidity assumed often with rules uh, where this is where we see a lot of folks feeling betrayal if their partner wants to shift things in some degree. So like, for instance, if a couple uh, had been doing monogamy and then they decided to do non-monogamy and their first rule was like no falling in love. And then one of the people starts feeling love feelings for one of their partners, the partner that they started with can feel betrayed by that, that they have broken this rule. Mm -hmm. um, 
rules often, I don't want to say always because, you know, generalizations are always terrible. Um, (laughs) But in many cases, rules end up creating situations that can be unethical in the way that they treat the people involved in them, Um, particularly the folks who don't get a say in the rule. And rules are often a way of, again, creating structural solutions to emotional problems. Um, So relationship anarchists don't do rules. They don't do any agreements that affect folks who couldn't have a say in them. And they also tend to not do agreements. Instead, interacting with their partners in a way based solely on boundaries. So let me talk about this for like STIs and sexual health, because that's where most people are like, you have to have rules. Um, If I was coming from a boundary stance, like a relationship anarchist might, my boundary might be that I engage with people uh, whose sexual health practices are in alignment with my risk assessment and my uh, willingness to assume risk. So that could include the way that they use barriers, the frequency of testing, and the ways that they communicate with me about who they are having sex with and how they're doing that. An agreement might be my partner and I agree that like we don't use barriers for sex, but we will use barriers with other people. And then one of us gets into a relationship where we decide we don't want to use barriers. And so we all sit down together to negotiate what that means. Mm-hmm. And rules would be we don't use barriers with each other. You use barriers with everyone else. This does not change. Um, because it comes from a place of boundaries as its primary structure, relationship anarchy can feel really hard for folks who are newer to non-monogamy because there's less space for being upset with other people about what they're doing. Mm -hmm. When you're coming from a space of boundaries, uh, you're coming from a space of making your own decisions about what you will or will not do. And for a lot of us, that's counter to what we learned about how we do relationship. We learned that you use whatever it takes to get your partner to do what they need to do to make you happy, rather than you ask them for what you want and need, they tell you what they can fulfill, and then you decide what that means. When you're coming from a place of boundaries, a lot of times it can feel like you're having to pay for something someone else did. Uh, So for instance, um, I recently ended a relationship because the partner was just not communicating with me the way that he had agreed to. And he kept saying he was going to start communicating that way and then not doing it. And I had to end the relationship, even though he was the one not giving me what I wanted. There have been some other things about like sexual risk stuff and the ways he had engaged with certain partners. But when folks come from a place of boundaries, a lot of times you're the one having to choose to let go of something. And that can feel unfair. Like, why should I have to lose this because my partner decided to have sex without a condom? Why do I have to go back to using condoms? They should just go back to using condoms with other people. Um, Harriet Lerner talks about this a lot in her book, The Dance of Anger, mm-hmm. um, which is an excellent book for anyone who's going to do non-monogamy. Um, that when we're feeling angry and trying to get another person to do what we want them to do, we're just going to end up in this cycle of trying to force them to do other things and them resisting it and both of us feeling angry at each other. When instead, if you take a step back and say, okay, if this is what they are going to do, then what does that mean for me? How do I want to interact with them? You know, the question I ask a ton of my clients is, if this is how your partner is going to do things, if you assume that this is going to continue, then what kind of relationship can you feel good having with them? And that's kind of at the core of relationship anarchy, is being honest about what that person has to offer, being honest about what it is that you want and need, and then determining what kind of relationship could feel good to you given those things. So it's almost what I'm here because I even have a hard time wrapping my my head around relationship anarchy, and I'm supposed to be, you know, somewhat expert. Um, so what I'm hearing, to. you totally are. It, yeah. Anyway, so <laughs> I hate that word. I hate that word, yeah. expert. Like I just, I, I don't think anyone's really an expert. Like maybe I'm more proficient than your average person, but yeah. I don't. Expert is kind of pretentious. But anyway, I, mean, I like framing it as like folks who have some degree of expertise rather than you are an expert. Yes, right? rather I than like being that. a quality of a person, it is a thing that you have done. I like that. I like that. So, like, what I'm hearing you talk about uh, relationship anarchy, it's, it's. As if instead of saying, which we often do in relationships, like, I don't like X, Y, Z about you. So I want to change you or I want you to, I want you to make an effort to change this behavior for me. Instead saying, all right, this is how you're going to be. 
and I need need to learn how to work within how you are. And if I can't work with that or work around that or, or whatever, deal with it in whatever way, then maybe this isn't the thing. Yeah. And I think, you know, so uh, Coupling, which was a British TV series that's hilarious about sex and mm-hmm. relationships, uh, one of the characters says at some point, he's a whole buffet of improvability. And I think especially <laughs> those of us socialized as women are taught that that's how you approach relationship, that like your way, your job is to reform dudes and make them better. They're uh, a diamond in the rough. They have so much potential. Yeah. They're just a little rough around the edges. Women are taught to date potential. And that's a hugely toxic lesson because uh, a lot of times when you're dating potential, the potential never happens. Um mm-hmm. When you have to accept exactly who someone is right now and how they are behaving right now and assume that that is going to be what continues, uh, if you're like, for instance, a cisgender woman who dates cisgender men, that's going to really significantly narrow your dating pool. Like, let's just be super real. You know, I, yeah. I'm a bisexual person. I, uh, date people of a lot of different genders. I consider myself a dick addict because I cannot leave the dick, even though. <laughs> Everything attached to the dick seems like just dedicated to making my life hell. So (laughs) we have to be honest about what actually works for us. And I think a lot of people get into like sunk cost fallacies of like, well, I've put in all this time and like, I can't let go of it now. Or this like fantasy of, of improvability and potential of like, well, yes, I know that he's hurting me a ton right now, but look at all the potential that stuff isn't real. We have to be honest about what is real in our lives and what is real in our relationships. Is it possible that that person might someday be exactly the person you hope that they will be? Sure. But unless you're seeing them do actual work towards moving towards that, that potential doesn't exist. It's a fantasy. Mm -hmm. It's a fallacy. Relationship anarchy, I think because of the way that it does things without having those rules and agreements, forces you to be much more honest about the reality of the person as they are. And I think that that's healthier in a lot of ways. Like, I don't want to be dated for my potential. I don't want someone to date me with hopes of changing the ways that I am. Like, that doesn't feel good. Um, someone dating me under some preconceived idea of how they can make me better, that feels really gross. And I don't want to do yeah. that to other people either. Um, and it's scary. Like, there's so much less perceived security there. Now, I'm going to be super honest. When you have rules and agreements, it's it's perceived security. It's not real, right? Like, the only way to make sure that someone follows your rules 100% is to handcuff yourself to them and never sleep. Like, that's <laughs> literally the only way to ensure it. So any security that you get from your rules and agreements is perceptual, not reality. But especially if you're coming from monogamy, especially if you're newer to this, it feels so unsafe to so go to a space of, I'm going to empower you to do whatever you want to do with your body and your time. And I'm going to trust that you're going to be good to me with it. That's a huge leap. And it, you know, it's interesting. I'm thinking about this from the the listener's point of view and American fuckers listening along. If you're listening to what Dr. Liz just said, and you're applying it to your non-monogamous relationship, hold up, stop. If you're monogamous, apply that to your monogamous relationship. If you have friends or family members where this doesn't apply, apply it to that relationship yeah. because this is universal in any type of relationship you have with anybody business too right like there are a lot of us who put up with shit in business that we should not be putting up with uh for instance i tweeted about this uh there was this guy who asked me to be on his podcast and it's an 80s horror (gasps) podcast oh yes i uh that is not my specialty right (laughs) yeah and uh he told me he'd had other sex educators on so i messaged one of them and she told me you know, that she didn't recommend that I go on his podcast for a variety of reasons. And so I sent him a very polite, like, this is not the right fit for me email. And our email exchange ended with him calling me a dyke bitch. God. Yes. (laughs) Which he then justified to another person by saying that as a bisexual man who lives in San Francisco and has gay friends, he knows the difference between a lesbian and a dyke. And like, oh, God. Yeah. On the one hand, like, I'm honored that he thinks lesbians would fuck me because I have sex with too many penises for most lesbians. But (laughs) on the other hand, like, coming from a space of boundaries, I set a boundary with him and he didn't honor it. And that for me is a huge sign that this is not a person to be in a relationship with. 
right? right? As soon as I set a boundary and someone pushes it or tells me that it's not valid or that I need to justify that boundary to them, that is a huge sign that that is not a good person for me. And that's in Mm. business, that's in friendship, that's in sexual and romantic relationships. Our boundaries are really important. And when we set them, they need to be respected by the folks around us. The ways that we interact with others, like for instance, familial relationships, how many of you have parents that are continually trying to shape what you're doing, even though you're a grown ass human, you know, my mom Mm -hmm. told me the last time I was home that she just doesn't approve of anything I'm doing with my life. And like still tells me when we talk on the phone that she hopes I find the one man for me. (sighs) Right. And, and like, from a space of compassion, that's because she found a lot of happiness in her monogamous relationship with my father. And she wants me to have that happiness. And she has trouble seeing that that's not the happiness that I want. So as a result, I don't have a super close relationship with her because she can't understand and honor the reality of my life. She keeps trying to force me to be the person she wants me to be. It's not healthy in any of our relationships to be dating someone to change them, to be relating with someone to change them, to be a friend with someone to change them we have to take the step back instead and say, first of all, who the fuck are you to tell them what to do with their lives? And secondly, just make your own decision about you. Stop trying to make decisions for other people. Focus on you. Yeah. Oh, that's so good. That's so good. American fuckers listening. If there's one thing you take away from that, from this conversation, it's that there is one more thing though. I want to ask you that is huge when people talk about polyamory and non-monogamy is the concept of hierarchical uh, non-monogamy, meaning that if, let's say, you are a couple, your, you know, your person, let's say you're married, your wife or husband is your primary partner. And then all other partners after that take on a secondary role and they don't have as much I don't know, control, say, importance, division of time, whatever in the relationship as that primary partner. So is uh, hierarchical polyamory bad or can it be okay in some instances? So this is a really complicated question because I think in part it depends upon how we're defining hierarchy. Uh, The way that a lot of people defend hierarchy is by talking about preference or priority. And I will never tell anyone that you can't have some relationships that have a greater priority for you or that you give greater preference to in terms of your time or energy. Non-hierarchical polyamory doesn't mean that you treat every person exactly the same. Um, The way that I define hierarchy is as a structure in which there is uh, a difference in the empowerment and autonomy of people at different levels in the relationship. So people who are primaries have greater empowerment and autonomy than people who are secondaries. And that power imbalance for me is where we start to have issues with ethics. Um, If you want to have a a hierarchical relationship, like you can do whatever you want with your life. That is your choice. I don't personally date people who are in hierarchies because it has been my experience that when I try to date someone in a hierarchy, there is someone outside of my relationship who has as much or more say than I do in that relationship. And I don't feel good about that. In my relationships, I want myself and the partner that I have to be the ones with the greatest say in what happens in that relationship. Um, I think for some folks, there are ways that hierarchy feels good for them or works well for them. Some people have what they call descriptive hierarchies rather than hierarchies that create that situation of disempowerment or imbalance in autonomy and power. Um, But the way that I define hierarchy, I think that it just provides a lot of potential for um, ways that you can harm the people who are at the lower levels in the hierarchy. Mm. Whenever you say that like some person is more valid than another person, that's, that can get really problematic. Um, and again, I think that there are a lot of ways to establish what a lot of people are trying to get from hierarchy without creating that power imbalance. You know, a lot of folks love veto power. Veto power is a rule that a lot of folks starting in non-monogamy want to have. If there's someone that their partner is dating that makes them feel really scared or bad, they want to be able to say, no, you can't do that anymore. But if you think about that from the position of the secondary, there is now a sort of Damocles hanging over your relationship that at any moment, this other person could decide that you're not allowed to be in that relationship anymore. Someone who's completely uninvolved. There is a way in which... 
that is true and untrue, right? Like the person who you are partnering with could tell their partner that they're not going to stop dating you. But when the structure is such that it reinforces that this is something that is okay and good, that's when I have an issue with it. And again, like, I don't like to say that anything is always bad or always good. I don't think there's anything in this world that is 100% that clear. Uh, I just know that for me, I don't feel good engaging with folks who are in the hierarchies. Okay. Okay. So I have a question. Sonny and I have an interesting kind of hierarchy, I think, in that when there's a veto in this is sort of been unsaid with us that it happens in the beginning yeah. of, of the dating, but not during the relationship. Yeah. Like we started out cause we, we started out open, like we've never been monogamous and we started out with, with veto power, but we never, never really use it. Use it. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like it was there and it's just like, well, we trust that, but you know, or if we're, well, it's more that starting, I have bad judgment. And if Sonny says, um, you know, with that one, you just might want to be a little bit more cautious. And, yeah. that's, and that's where she ends it right there. It's, and I'm like, Oh, that means bad. And I, chose poorly yeah it's more like coming to a friend like what do you think this per- about this person i'm about right. to date give me your opinion I, I have no and idea i'll be like you know and i'll just be like I, I don't know about that one but i'm not gonna be like no don't i'm just like be careful yeah. you know like my magic eight ball is like i don't know well, so, like i would <laughs> but, say that that's not like a strict veto right the way yeah. that you two are talking about it is that it's the start of a conversation that if one of you yeah, has exactly. a concern you sit down and chat with each other about it the way that I think about veto as like a strict veto power is, you know, person A says to person B, no, you cannot date that person. And that's the end of the discussion, right? I think that what y'all have is something that is about valuing each other's opinions and like recognizing ways that you may have negative patterns. Like, you know, can you say you have bad judgment? I get really intoxicated by dick. And so I need to know sometimes <laughs> that that dick is not the one I should be chasing. Um, and that doesn't mean that other people get to veto my partners. What it means is that I have people I trust whose opinions I, I value. And if they tell me that this is a relationship that's not going to go well for me, that I listen to that and take that to heart. Yeah. You know, yeah. and that's, I guess we're just using veto power. in Because there's like, not a word for, well, is there yeah. a word for, for it? what we have? Like, I mean, she's my best friend. We have kids together. We live right. together, but we bo- both also have partners. And I don't know what we have. It's not really anarchy and it's not really hierarchical. Yeah. I would say, you know, to me, it's it's not hierarchical in like an emotional way. It's hierarchical in I fucking don't want a third adult being in our household. No, like I don't want to go that far. <laughs> so it's sure. like if you were to say like I met someone and she's gonna be your sister, I'd be like, okay, no, wait a minute, no. you know. But I don't think that would ever happen. And I don't think with like, my partners that you know, like Lily, there's no way right. That would happen, so it's like know? it's a hierarchy in terms of like, yes, you are my spouse and you are going to be my only spouse because I don't fucking want, want another, another spouse. spouse. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Like, what is that? Mutually assured destruction? I mean, I think that, like, sometimes it's just, like, again, we have this paucity of language. Um, I would describe what y'all are doing as not necessarily hierarchical because you aren't exerting power over each other's choices, right? You're giving input and you're expressing concerns, but you're not deciding what each other does. And you're both on the same page about not wanting to live with anybody else. You're both on the same page about how you share children and how you share housing. Like that's not a hierarchy necessarily. Um, again, sometimes we have preference. Like I don't know if I would live with a partner. Maybe I would. I would maybe live in like a big poly house where we all sort of date each other sometimes. But like, I don't know that I want to move into like a six adult house where like a, an understanding is you have to be dating all of these people actively. Um, and so I, I think it's, we're still really expanding our language about this. Um, and I think that the problem with that is that the ways that we use terms may not be the same way that someone else uses a term. So like if you're explaining to one of your partners, the way that each of you has veto power, someone might hear that and have a very different impression of what that means. Or if right. someone says to me that they're in a hierarchy, for me, that's an immediate like, eh, no, thanks, red X. Uh, where what they might mean is something more like what you two do. And so I think that the lesson here might be like getting more curious. Like when someone tells you about what kind of relationship they're in, asking questions about what that means. Like if I tell someone I'm solo poly, if you ask me what that means, I can give you a really great description. But if you make an assumption that that means that I don't want serious relationships, I don't want long-term relationships, I just want to be single, you're totally fucking wrong. So I think that 
because the language is still so new and still evolving very quickly, it's hard to describe these things with adequate language and with shorthand. Yeah. Yeah, that that's helpful. We it's just don't helpful, have actually. the words, Ken, and we're using the wrong ones. But we so, know that we love each other, and every day we like, we come across some sort of circumstance. Like when I almost had the oops poops today, and you knew I was t- posting about it in the bathroom when I had the actual poops. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> this is why we're married. This is why we're married. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, TMI. No, no, totally. Fine. Look, I love talking about poop. I feel like people don't talk about poop enough. It's really important. We might have something to talk to you about after the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's going to be a private poop conversation for all you American fuckers listening, wondering. Maybe you never know. Maybe you will know. You'll have to find out. But if out. you join our Patreon, you'll know for sure. Yes. That's all we can yes. say. Patreon.com slash American Sex. Anyway, Dr. I, Liz. I, I wanted to say, I just started my own Patreon. Oh, oh you what did. is they it? They are amazing. What is it's it? Patreon.com slash Dr. Liz. D-R-L-I-Z. Awesome. Very cool. Very, yeah. very cool. So American fuckers go there. That's the first stop for Dr. Liz. Um, but also what is your book and what are, what are their second stops? Where else can they find you? My book is building open relationships and you can find it at building My main website is drlizpowell.com. So drlizpowell.com. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. I'm on all the social medias. Uh, and I have a YouTube channel as well, which is called sex positive psych. Uh, and I post videos there about all kinds of things related to sex and relationships. Uh, I have a video coming out soon that may be out, maybe by the time this podcast is out, talking about dating in the age of re- abortion restrictions. So, Ooh. you know, variety of topics. Nice. Thank you. Well, this has been great. great. And, and as always, thank you for your service and thank you for being on the show. Yeah, thank you, Ken. It's always fun to talk to another veteran, especially in the sex community, because... Yeah, there's can, like four of us. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it can feel really isolating. <laughs> well, thank you. This has been awesome. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll talk again. We All right. Thanks, All y'all. Right. Thanks for listening to American Sex. To keep up with Ken and I, we'll first make sure you watch our TV show, Sex with Sunny Megatron, on Showtime. Then visit SunnyMegatron.com. There you can learn more about us, read our blog, peruse our workshop calendar, or hire us. For what? Well, either for private coaching, or to book us to teach at your event or university, or as sex and relationship writers for your publication. Oh, and don't forget, we're on social media, too. I'm the super social one, so you can find me as Sunny Megatron on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, my YouTube channel, and a bunch of other places. But if you want to get me on Snapchat, you got to look for Sunny underscore Megatron, and you can follow Ken on Twitter at at tag PsyChicken. That's P-S-Y-C-H-I-C-K-E-N. Also, please support us by shopping with the affiliates and sponsors from our breaks. And if you contribute to our Patreon, we're going to love you forever. Well, we're going to love you forever anyway, but just go with it. Lastly, if you like this broadcast, tell people about it. Tweet it, Facebook status it, and rate it on iTunes and other platforms. Thanks, friends. We'll see you next week on American Sex.